0: And now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to come to Your Word, we recognize that if You did not bless the preaching of Your Word, it would fall on deaf ears. But we know, Lord, that You are more capable of blessing the preaching of Your Word than I am of preaching it. And so we pray, Lord, that You would use Your Word to nourish us, to strengthen us, to convict us, to correct us, perhaps to rebuke us, to encourage us. Lord, You know what we need, and we pray that You would use Your Word to give us what we need. For the glory of Christ, in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of First Samuel, chapter 14. We'll be looking at First Samuel, chapter 14, verses 1 to 23 today. As we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. In this chapter, it brought me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, which say this It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and let us consider how to stimulate one another or admonish one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see the day drawing near? Is the world going crazy? Are you ready for Christ to return? We need to be stimulated to good works. We need to admonish one another to good works. And this chapter is very much going to do that. We fondly refer to October as Reformation Month, Uh, And with that in mind, it's as good a time as any for us to remember that it was on this month, 506 years ago, uh, that the, the Reformation began. It was the commencement of what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. It was at the end of this month, October, in the year 1517, that Martin Luther posted his 59 theses on the door of the Schlosskirche, which is the castle church Of Wittenberg. And while that was possibly the second most significant event in church history, um, possibly placing second only to the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, it probably didn't feel like such a significant event at the time to Martin Luther. Martin Luther, you see, he wasn't the first person to have a problem with the way things were going with the Roman Catholic Church. Many people had come before him who had voiced complaints about this or that within the Roman Catholic Church. John Wycliffe, for example. But Luther's stand is what really kicked off the Protestant Reformation. And while Luther wasn't the first Uh, person to, to voice objections or complaints to the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, I have no doubt that in that moment, at that time, Martin Luther was feeling extremely, extremely alone. If you could liken him to anything, it would just be the point of a spear. He was just a small part of it. He wasn't the whole thing. There were several people, many people behind him, but he had no idea how many people were going to side with him. He had no idea what a big movement he was beginning. Uh, he was starting by, by posting Uh, his 95 complaints against indulgences, all he knew was that somebody had to say something about the practice of indulgences by the Roman Catholic Church. One of the men who had become a significant figure in the Protestant Reformation was a Scottish pastor and theologian named John Knox. Uh, he's one of my favorites. He was a very bold and outspoken man. And one of the great quotes that John Knox left for us would be a succinct summarization of why Luther's efforts were successful. This is what John Knox said He said, quote, The man who stands with God is always in the majority. Right. The man who stands with God is always in the majority. And that's why somebody like Jonathan Edwards would make his, his, uh, his uh, promises, his, his vows, uh, starting with, I will be faithful to God. Number two, if nobody else is doing it, I'm still going to do it. That's what John Knox was talking about when he said, the man who stands with God is always in the majority. That's a principle that Christians throughout the ages have always stood on. That it doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people think. What matters is what God says. And if God says something, you're in the majority, as long as you're siding with Him. The great theologian from the council of Nicaea, Athanasius, uh, who, who wrote the, the creed that we refer to as the Athanasian Creed. He exemplified this principle. Uh, many in his day were abandoning the, the biblical Jesus, and they were falling prey to a heresy that would uh, come to be known as Arianism. Arianism. Arianism is a heresy which denies Uh, Christ's equality with the Father. It says that he's not a creator, uh, but that he is a created being. Uh, So Arius was a teacher in Athanasius' day who convinced many that Jesus was not God, uh, that he was a creature, but he was not himself creator God. In other words, the students of Arius uh, embraced the idea that there was a time when the Son was not there was a time when Jesus was not. He was a created being. And this was being embraced by scores of professing Christians. So, because of the stand that he took against this heresy, Athanasius would become known as Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius versus or against the world. And I have no idea, or uh, no doubt, that that's exactly how he felt. Like it was just him against the world. But the man who stands with God is always in the majority. And as we come to our text today in 1 Samuel chapter 14, let me encourage you to keep that principle, keep that saying in mind, because it's a principle that we're going to see as we cover verses 1 to 23 of this chapter as well. Now just to set some context here in our text, chapter 13 ended terribly for Israel. Uh, King Saul's son Jonathan, if you remember in chapter 13, he had provoked the Philistines to war by striking the uh, the Philistines' garrison, and instead of trusting in God when the Philistines rose up against them, uh, King Saul took matters into his own hands offering sacrifices unto God in a manner uh, that, was, that did not comply with how God had instructed those sacrifices to be given. And as a result of King Saul's disobedience, as a result of his failure to do things God's way, to worship God in God's way, Israel did not receive the blessings of God's deliverance. They suffered greatly as a result of their king's sin. And actually, this makes a wonderfully clear lesson uh, in what we would call federal headship. Federal headship. This is uh, something that you'll see in Romans chapter 5. It's a very important uh, doctrine that we understand. Federal headship. See, Adam is said to be humanity's federal head by default. Uh, that is, they're their representative by nature. In Adam, when he fell, we all fell into sin. Because he sinned, we all suffered the consequences of his sin. But Jesus, the true and greater Adam, did not sin. And that's why it's only when a person is in Christ that they receive the blessings of God's salvation. Adam earned us death as a federal head, but as a federal head, Christ earned us eternal life. He earned eternal life for all who believe on him. Both Adam and Christ are referred to as federal heads because what we receive from God, life or death, condemnation or justification is determined by what our federal head what our representative earned us so needless to say this is why it's so important that somebody believes in Jesus because the alternative the only alternative is to be an Adam and to be dead in sin but the Israelites suffered severe oppression at the hands of the Philistines because of the sin of their king Saul's army went from about 3,000 at the beginning of chapter 13 to roughly 600 by the end of the chapter. And the Philistine army was, we don't know, but there were a lot. There were as much as, they were uh, about 100 times greater, is what it sounds like. Not only that, but. All the weapons that the Israelites had were lost. Uh, well, almost all the weapons, almost. Uh, Saul still had his sword, and so did Jonathan. But everybody else, all they had were tools. Uh, they, they, they didn't have any weapons. And while Saul had his sword, he no longer had Samuel to guide him spiritually. Samuel had left Gilgal, uh, Saul's hometown, and he had departed for Gibeah of Benjamin, Without Samuel's guidance, Saul also didn't have God's guidance. And so this chapter begins with Israel being in an absolutely terrible situation. Uh, It looks like they're done for. Saul is so outnumbered, it looks like it's just a hopeless situation. But Jonathan, his son, Jonathan is going to remind us that the man who stands with God is always in the majority. So the point of our passage today is that the goal of the Christian life is to avail ourselves to God's purposes, seeking to be instruments in His hands through which He advances His kingdom and does whatever pleases and glorifies Him. Let me say that again. The goal of the Christian life is to avail ourselves unto God's purposes, seeking to be instruments in his hands through which he advances his kingdom and does whatever pleases and glorifies him. So this chapter begins by giving us a stark contrast between two figures. Let's look at uh, 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 14 verses 1 to 5. It says, Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod and the people did not know that jonathan had gone between the passes by which jonathan sought to cross over to the philistines garrison there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side and the name of one was bozez and the other and the name of the other was sene the one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash, and the other on the south opposite geba Now we've already been introduced to Jonathan. We were introduced to him in the previous chapter. Uh, In the previous chapter, our first encounter, our first glimpse of Jonathan came when he struck the garrison of the Philistines, which quickly led to an uprising of the Philistines, quickly led to a war between the Philistines and the Israelites, a war that the Israelites, quite frankly, were just 100% unprepared for. And if that had been the only passage that we have in which Jonathan was ever mentioned, uh, we might think that he was just a rebel. We might think that he was just a, a serious troublemaker, somebody who would instigate trouble just for the sake of instigating trouble. We've all known somebody like that, or maybe you were that person like me. Um, but maybe uh, he was those things, but we wouldn't know why he was those things if that was the only chapter or passage in which he's mentioned, but he's also one of the main characters in this chapter, chapter 14. And in this chapter, we get a fuller picture of who Jonathan is, the kind of man that he was. In fact, he was a man uh, who didn't just like to instigate or cause problems. No, he was actually a man of great faith and great courage. That's what uh, drove him to provoke Uh, this war between the Philistines and the Israelites. He was devoted to the Lord in all of his ways, which is why he and David would go on to be such close friends. Uh, Richard Phillips, in his commentary, he says this of Jonathan, quote, We know that Jonathan must have been a sinner, yet in his biblical portrayal we see a shining model of Christian manhood, faithful friendship, and devoted service to the cause of the Lord. And so with that said, guys, men, uh, pay attention to Jonathan. Because it should be the greatest desire of our hearts that the same thing could be said of us that Richard Phillips said in his commentary about Jonathan. That we would be remembered as being men who were Christian men, uh, demonstrating Christian manhood, faithful friendship, and devoted service to the cause of the Lord. There are a lot of young men out there on social media, uh, young and naive men on social media, calling for a return to biblical manhood these days. And yet the kind of manhood, the kind of manliness uh, they're advocating, they're demonstrating, is a very worldly uh, type of manliness for the most part. And such could not be said of Jonathan. He didn't demonstrate a worldly type of manliness. And I pray that such would not be said of you, or of me either the chapter at hand begins with uh, giving us this stark contrast two figures are set side by side for us to examine them and to compare and contrast them as a means of showing us the wisdom of one and the foolishness of the other the strength of one and the weakness of the other the faithfulness of one the unfaithfulness of the other. You get the point. And the two characters that are set side by side for us here are King Saul and his own son, Jonathan. The war that was initiated by Jonathan in chapter thirteen began when Jonathan struck the garrison, the, the kind of the commanding officer of the Philistines. Here in chapter 14 the chapter begins with Jonathan summoning the young man who uh, who carried Jonathan's armor to join him in going to the other side uh, of this pass to pay the Philistine garrison a visit once again. King Saul on the other hand, here's the contrast. King Saul on the other hand is doing nothing. He's he's sitting Right? He's doing absolutely nothing. We're told in verses 2 and 3 that he was sitting beneath a pomegranate tree in the outskirts of, of Gibeah. So, so King Saul is sitting under this tree while his son is on his feet venturing across this pass to find the Philistine garrison. Saul is doing absolutely nothing to, uh, to take initiative in terms of taking initiative to help free his people who are oppressed The Israelites are oppressed. They they look hopeless all across the land. And that's something that should strike us as unbecoming of a king. Just like for us, it's unbecoming of a president when there's a massive tragedy, a terrorist attack or something, and the president were to stay silent. We'd say that's really unbecoming. and There's no excuse for that, right? Same goes here. He should be doing something other than sitting under a pomegranate tree. So with... With King Saul are 600 men approximately, including a man named Ahijah, who is a descendant of the priest we met at the beginning of the book, uh, that priest being Eli. And Ahijah priestly described as wearing a linen ephod, which is priestly attire. The 600 men are completely unarmed. Their, their weapons are gone. We saw in the previous chapter that the Philistines ran off all the blacksmiths so as to prevent anyone from turning their tools into swords or spears. But isn't it interesting that a descendant of Eli is serving in the role of a priest? He, he's, he's wearing the garments of the priest, and he's apparently doing what the priests were supposed to do. After all, what was God's vow to Eli? God vowed that Eli's family would never serve in the priesthood again as a result of Eli's apathy toward the sins of his sons. Ahijah is the nephew of Ichabod, uh, who was born right after the death of Phinehas was announced. You might remember that the name Ichabod uh, meant the glory is gone or the glory has departed. So Saul is sitting down under a tree, taking no initiative to free his people, and he's accompanied by a relative of a man named The Glory is Gone. And now th- these aren't just like random things that are just scattered in there for the sake of putting some details in there. No It's provided to show us how completely Saul has lost his way spiritually neither Saul nor his soldiers are doing a single thing they're not lifting a finger to remedy the situation that they're facing in fact they're not even keeping an eye on their own camp and we know this because nobody even realizes it when Jonathan leaves the camp with his armor bearer. nobody even notices where are the guards where are the people that are keeping watch on everybody what kind of an army is this it's a useless army it's a useless army. Saul sits in apathy while his son Jonathan springs to action. Do you see the contrast? Do you see how, how completely different these two figures are? Both Saul and Jonathan still have their swords, but one sword is in its sheath and the other is unsheathed. Saul is a sitting duck who spiritually has lost his way while Jonathan shows us that he's a man of fearless, bold living, active faith in God. Now the terrain that Jonathan would have to cross Uh, is just notoriously difficult to navigate, especially in large companies, large groups. Uh, That's undoubtedly why Saul is positioned where he is. He's in a place where the whole Philistine army can't can't come to get him. So between is defined as a steep, rugged mass of rock projecting upward and or outward. Uh, Something that only very skilled climbers would be able to scale, that is. And these crags are treacherous, which is why they're named the way they are. Uh, The one named Bozes, that means slippery. The one uh, named Senna, uh, that means thorny. So he's got to scale both of these. Between these crags, there would be a narrow valley, a a trough that led toward the Jordan River. Uh, This would create kind of a a bottleneck effect, which no military would be able to get through uh, to invade. Uh, The the opponents would just be on the other side, waiting for five or six to come out at a time and knock them down wait for the next five or six. They couldn't attack as a mass. But while an army couldn't use this trough to attack, two men easily could. But the point that we're supposed to see so far is that there's this enormous difference between the king, between Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't even stop to ask for his father's blessing, for his, his father's permission. Uh, we can, I, I think we can reasonably conclude that he probably wouldn't have given him permission anyway. But Jonathan simply does what his father should have already been doing, acting in faith to deliver the people. And as we're about to see, it wasn't just that Jonathan liked to stir up trouble. He was good at stirring up trouble, but he did it for the right reason. He did it for the right reason. His actions are not driven by just a a desire to, to pick a fight with somebody. No, they're driven by a confident trust in the fact that nothing is impossible with God. So Jonathan is a man of faithful convictions. And when you're a man with faithful convictions, it becomes something that you can't just keep inward. It affects what you do. And so it's affecting, it's driving Jonathan to do what he's about to do. Look at verses 6, uh, six and 7 with me. It says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. So why is Jonathan doing this? Why is Jonathan venturing over to the place where the camp of the Philistines was, was located? It's because he knew that nothing is impossible with God. He says to his armor bearer, perhaps the Lord will work for us for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. What does that mean? It means that God can use one person to deliver all of Israel or he could use the whole army. God is sovereign, but God doesn't depend on numbers. In other words, what Jonathan knew was that victory wasn't going to be a matter of waiting around for more ideal circumstances, waiting for a moment maybe when the Philistines were more vulnerable. And it wasn't going to be an issue of waiting for the Philistines to make some kind of mistake which they could capitalize on. It wasn't going to be an issue of drawing up the perfect battle plan or developing a better army with a better commander, somebody who understood the terrain, understood the weapons, and could devise some sort of strategy to invade. No, these are all worldly strategies. And Jonathan is taking a hard pass on all of them. No, victory didn't depend on any of these factors. Rather, it could come only by the mighty hand of God, regardless of circumstances and regardless of numbers or lack thereof. After all, there are only 600 uh, in, uh, in Saul's company. Jonathan was confident that if the Lord wanted... In his sovereign will, if he just wanted to use Jonathan alone to do something to either provoke a war or to win the war or to free his people in some way, he could. God just needed one person. From a human perspective, we'd say, that's funny. That's impossible. That, that could never be done. But faith doesn't look at things from a human perspective. It simply looks to God it trusts in God, and it acts knowing what God is capable of doing. Knowing that with God, nothing is impossible. This is the way it has always been for those who believe in God and trust in Him, walking by faith. Faith doesn't rely on numbers, or odds, or favorable circumstances, or strategies, or any of those things. Faith simply looks to God, trusting in God and acting on that trust acting acting that's that's what Saul isn't doing and why isn't he acting because Saul isn't a man of faith Jonathan is a man of great faith is your faith small are you a a man or woman of great faith or small faith then open your Bible. If you, if you worry about the size of your faith, open your Bible and read the stories of how God did what seemed, to man at least, to be impossible. Read the stories of how God used men, men who were, were wretched sinners, men who had disabilities, how he used those men to overcome insurmountable odds. See the way that God has always been faithful to His people and was always capable of delivering His people. These are, these are real stories that we read about in Scripture. They're, they aren't ancient myths. They aren't allegories. None of the, the prophets... Uh, saw the stories that way. Jesus didn't see the stories that way. Not a single one of the New Testament authors saw the stories that way. These stories are real. They're historically accurate stories. And they all teach us the same lesson. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Or, in other words, the man who stands with God is always in the majority. Do you personally have that kind of faith in God, that kind of confidence in God? I Man, I'd say these days, if you want to be a Christian, you need to. <laughs> the world is going crazy. Everything looks, on the surface, like it's out of control. But that's only from a, a human perspective. From God's perspective, we need to be reassured once again that everything is under control nothing that's going on in the world is taking God by surprise. Nothing in the world is outside of his control. And if you don't know that, if you don't believe that, you're going to be shaken to your core by all the madness going on in the world today. See, when you understand this about God, when, when you believe this about God, When you have this kind of faith, you don't don't feel any need to worry about where all the madness in the world is leading us. Or if you're going through some sort of trial or some sort of affliction yourself, you can rest your head on the soft pillow of God's sovereignty, knowing that God is not only with you, but that He is for you, and that you're only facing your trial or your affliction because God ordained it. That's the only reason it's happening. It's because God ordained it. And so, if anything, your trial or your affliction or whatever you're going through, it just gives you the opportunity to have a front row seat to watching God using your afflictions, using your trials to reveal His greatness, His grace, His glory, His power, all in such a way that it is guaranteed to make you more like Jesus now if you have that perspective you won't be shaken by the madness in the world and you won't be shaken by trials and afflictions so why does Jonathan act it's because he has this outlook he knows this to be true He knows that God can use him. He knows that even if he gets himself into a bad situation, God can deliver him. Friends, you, you and I, we all need this kind of faith. The kind of faith that Jonathan has. But you can't stay parked underneath a pomegranate tree in a safe place. You need to act on that faith. You need to walk by faith. You need to live by faith. What the church in our day needs is Christians who are willing to demonstrate a fearless faith many Christians look at the needs not only in the church and there are many but they'll look at the needs that are that are in the world and they'll say it's impossible there, there's nothing that I can do to, to fix it they, they look at the numbers of the people who who don't believe in Jesus and they say there's just no way for us to reverse this trend okay yeah statistics are showing us that we're no religion instead of some religion okay You might say it's impossible, it's too late to to stop this trend. Not if you're sitting, not if you're getting up uh, from under the tree, it's not. Not if you're acting and walking in faith, it's not. If you're sitting under a tree, you're right, nothing's going to change. But if you're active, if you unsheath your sword and get to work, you don't know what God is capable of doing with what you do the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few believe that and live by that if you believe that you will live by that can the Lord use you personally just you just one of you absolutely of course he can in mightier ways than you could even dream of in fact every historic missionary that you can read about has believed this I guarantee our street preachers believe this. Uh, William Carey, the, the famous Reformed Baptist missionary to the region of India, he said this. He said, quote, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, end quote. That's the mindset of somebody who believes that God can do what seems impossible. That's a missionary mindset. But forget the historic missionaries for a moment. Is that your mindset? Do you believe that? If you do, it will change the way that you see everything. Listen, you don't have to have everything figured out ahead of time. You don't have to have everything planned out before you act. You don't need to wait for the right time or the right circumstances or the right strategy What you need above all is just a confidence that God is able to accomplish His will whether by many or by few. That's the kind of faith that God can use to do great things and to accomplish much. Look at what Jonathan says. He says he he doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. He has no idea how all of this is going to unfold. Here's what he says. He says, Perhaps... Perhaps the Lord will work for us. In other words, maybe He will, maybe He won't. But we won't know if we don't go. So he's not testing God. He's not demanding that God do something that God hasn't specifically promised to do. He's just making Himself available to the Lord's service. No wonder his armor bearer responds by saying, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself and here I am with you according to your desire. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd follow a man who had the faith in God that Jonathan had too, wouldn't you? Let's continue, verses 8-15. to Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor-bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furrow of, in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. So Jonathan, while they're, while they're on the way, he comes up with this plan. He, he, says, he decides first, you know, we'll, we'll climb down undetected behind the rocky crag on the south side down to the bottom ground in this this narrow canyon between the crags. And when they reach the Philistines who are camping up above, uh, they'll call out to them to get their attention and to alert them of their presence. And if the Philistines instruct them to just stay where they are, they're gonna come down to them. The two men will just stay in place and wait. But if the Philistines instruct them to come up, to scale this crag and come up to them, Jonathan says in verse 10, Then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. Now, okay, there's no indication that God has made any kinds of promises or guarantees here. There's no indication that God has said or indicated in any way whatsoever that this would be the sign that he had given the Philistines into their hand. So why does Jonathan say that it is? Why does he say this? How does he know that this is going to be the sign? Well, a couple answers. I mean, it's possible that God did reveal it to him and it just doesn't tell us, Uh, but it seems that Jonathan probably just uh, simply prayed to the Lord and trusted that this would be the sign because if this were to be the way that things unfolded, it would actually give Jonathan uh, the greatest advantage from a military strategy. So he was expecting God's help here as he should have. And he knew that if indeed God was helping them, that he would gain the greatest possible uh, strategic position. So he acts on that confidence, expecting God's, because that's what faith does. And so sure enough, as they approach the camp of the Philistine garrison and call out to the Philistines. The Philistines start cracking jokes about it, mocking the Israelites who had previously hidden and joking that they were finally coming out of the, the caves and the holes that they had hidden themselves in. But but sure enough, the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will tell you something. Uh, this is an invitation in the minds of the Philistines for these two complete idiots who were ready to take them on to come up and meet their demise. But in Jonathan's mind, and Jonathan's not an idiot, in Jonathan's mind, this was the sign that he had prayed for. And so the two men, uh, the, the, the two-man army, if you will, of Jonathan and his armor bearer, they, they scale the crag, they come up, and they're outnumbered 10 to 1. But knowing that the Lord had already given the fills the camp of about 20 Philistines who invited them up ended up meeting their own demise instead. These were 20 Philistine soldiers who would never, ever crack jokes about the Hebrews again. But the Philistines weren't just these 20 men. No, they had far, far more than just these 20 men. There were tens of thousands of men in the Philistine army. But as they take notice of what has happened and they start to feel a sense of panic as they see Jonathan and his armor bearer just routing these 20 men, suddenly the earth starts trembling and shaking and quaking, sending the entire Philistine army into a trembling of their own. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, we're told. Now it seems to me that the reason they're trembling is because in their last moments, a theological light has just gone on for them. Uh, They apparently saw what Jonathan was doing, and they recognized that it was not natural, uh, that God was with him, that God was for him. And they realized far too late, obviously, that Jonathan's faith has opened up the floodgates of God's terrible terrible wrath and judgment against the Philistines. Friends, faith acts. Fearless faith dares to do what seems, from a finite human perspective, to be impossible. It dares to do what might seem dangerous or uncomfortable. That's why missionaries go to places where Christians can't be found. It's because Fearless faith is the kind of faith that God can use to accomplish great things. It's the kind of faith that will enter into impossible circumstances knowing that nothing is impossible with God and that God is greatly glorified in us when we act out in this kind of faith. So do you know the friend, the relative, the child who's gone wayward? who doesn't walk with the Lord, who seems to be just completely hopeless. You have no right to think that they're hopeless. As long as they've still got a heartbeat, God can use you to reach them. He can use you to reach them, but not if you're sitting under a pomegranate tree. you got to be acting. you got to be speaking. You've got to be brave. And you've got to believe that God, not you, but that God can do what seems impossible. Now this marks a huge turning point for Israel. The author of of the book now turns our attention back to King Saul and his army. And it's actually kind of comical. Let's continue, verses 16 to 23. It says, Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Bet-Aven. Now really, this is almost comical, if you understand what happens here. Saul's watchmen, yeah, some watchmen they are, right? They they look out and they see the Philistine army getting absolutely uh, crushed, and obviously these aren't even good watchmen. Jonathan had snuck out without any of them even noticing, but the stampede of fleeing Philistines was so big, it was so obvious, so clear, uh, that even these guys who were terrible watchmen couldn't miss it. And Saul's response is uh, to know that it must have been that somebody from his camp snuck out and did something. Uh, He knows that somebody from his side must have gone over there. So he says, number now and see who has gone out from us. And sure enough, it was his son. Jonathan and his armor bearer have gone missing. King Saul wouldn't act. He wouldn't be the one to initiate action against the Philistines because he lacked faith. But as a father of the man who was being used by God to defeat the Philistines, maybe out of concern for his son, maybe just out of a sense of, oh, i got to look like I'm doing something now while people are watching. He obviously uh, decides that, okay, i got to do something. And so he instructs Ahijah, who again is acting as a priest, bring the ark of God here. And so... As King Saul continues speaking with Ahijah, the the commotion across the valley of, of the Philistines getting routed, getting crushed, is just getting louder and louder. And so finally he says to Ahijah, withdraw your hand. It's really interesting that he does this. See, God wasn't apparently communicating anything to Saul through the ark or through Ahijah. Uh, these priestly rituals were accomplishing absolutely nothing, if anything, they were just taking up a whole bunch of saul 's time in his mind and so Saul interrupts the priestly ritual that 's being used to discern god 's will and says, "Withdraw your hand just just cut it out, quit quit doing your little priestly ritual thing is basically what he 's saying. Matthew Henry notes that this was an instruction for Ahijah, to, to cease from inquiring of the Lord what King Saul should do, either because Saul no longer thought that he needed to hear an answer from falling enemy, that he would, because in Henry's words, quote, he was in such haste to fight a falling enemy that he would not stay to make an end of his devotions, nor hear what, God, uh, what answer God would give him, end quote. So in other words, he doesn't think that what God is saying has any significance, that it's not important enough to listen to, or he's thinking, hey, they're losing. Let's go and, let's go and help them lose. You know, while, while they're already losing, uh, let's make it look like we're contributing. Either way, Saul's spiritual condition is once again here revealed to be extremely, extremely poor. He called for the ark apparently because he felt like he should do something religious in the moment. But then when he thought that it was taking too long or it just wasn't working out the way that he thought it should, uh, he interrupted the process. Kind of like how sometimes when tragedy strikes somebody who doesn't go to church, all of a sudden they'll say, oh, I I need to start going to church. But then after a while, they decide, oh, this isn't doing anything for me. Why? Because they're going for the wrong reason. They're going for them not because they believe that God is worthy. But all King Saul could do was put on the appearance of religiosity, which is a terrible, terrible place to be spiritually. He viewed religion as a tool. He viewed it as kind of a a means to an end, a tool to accomplish a purpose rather than something to stand on, something to act on. King Saul is a picture of powerless, empty religiosity in contrast to his son, Jonathan's fearless faith that inspired him, inspired Jonathan to action. And since God was using Jonathan to win the battle and free the people, King Saul decides why well, he better jump in and join the two men in defeating the Philistines. At this point, even those who had committed treason against Israel, even those who had, even the Israelites who had joined the Philistine army to fight against their own people, they once again switched sides to fight with the uh, Israelites against the Philistines. Likewise, all the men who had hidden themselves in holes and caves and thickets and every place they could, they start to jump out and jump in once again. As the Philistines become confused, Uh, so confused that they start turning their swords against one another. The passage concludes with kind of a succinct summary, but it's a summary that must be read through eyes of faith. It says this, verse 23, So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Bet-Aven. Now on the surface, It looked like the Israelite army won, right? It looked like it was Jonathan who led the victory uh, or or that, that Israel had won. Now, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they were only instruments in God's hand, which is all they had hoped to be. And that was a great thing to want to be, of course. But God is the one who saved Israel on that day. And while it was God Himself who delivered the people on that day, we're nevertheless supposed to consider what we've seen here. To consider and to contemplate the differences between King Saul and his son Jonathan. Ask yourself and give yourself time to to contemplate this, to consider this. Which one of these two do you most closely resemble? Now it's true that faith is an, an inward thing. Right? Faith is is in the heart. It's something that we have inside of us. But faith also acts. It works. If faith doesn't work, if faith doesn't act, what kind of faith is it? Really? What does James tell us? James 2.17. Faith, if it has no works, is dead. And I've said it a million times, by the way, just so there's no confusion here, but it's worth repeating. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. All scripture is breathed out and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for good works. We are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So we're not saved by works, we're saved by Christ's works, not ours but we are saved for works. Reformation month, by the way, is a good time to remember that. We know that the Lord can accomplish much with even one faithful person. We see it here in our passage today, but far greater than what's recorded in this passage, we know that God used just one man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring salvation to to countless people throughout the ages who were loved by God from eternity past and who were chosen by God to be His people, predestined to adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. One man, one man, accomplished the salvation of countless saints. So how much can one person accomplish in God's economy? Friends, with God, nothing is impossible. And one man with God is always in the majority. Don't forget that. Live by that. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus, to ransom all who believe on him from death freeing us from the penalty of death, freeing us from the power of death. But just as the Son was sent by the Father into hostile territory for the sake of love and for the sake of God's glory and the salvation of wretched and vile sinners, which we are, so too the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sends us as those who are in Him, those who have believed on Him, He sends us into hostile territory as well yes the world will hate us but do you know who won't do you know who won't hate you if you go out into the world with the gospel the person God uses you to bring words of life to the person whose ears God opens when you share the good news of the gospel with that person will not hate you they will thank God for you The Father sent the Son whom He so loved, and you whom the Son has so loved have been sent into the world with a message of hope and reconciliation with God. And friends, I pray that you will not park yourself under a tree waiting for somebody else to do what you have been called to do. The goal of the Christian life is not comfort We so often are prone and so tempted to live like that's the the epitome. That's the goal of the Christian life. It's not. It's not comfort. It's not convenience. No, the goal of the Christian life is to avail ourselves, to make ourselves, ourselves available unto God's purposes, seeking to be instruments in His hands through which He advances His kingdom and does whatever pleases and glorifies Him. I see a lot of quotes from Elizabeth Elliot get shared on Twitter. But many of you probably also know the story of her husband, Jim Elliot, who was a missionary that got killed on the mission field, murdered by the people that he brought the Gospel to. I want to share this prayer of his with you. He prayed, God, I pray Thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for Thee. Consume my life, my God for it is Thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like You, Lord Jesus. I pray that that would be your prayer as well. What can God accomplish through you? You won't know unless you act on the faith that God has filled your heart with and saved you through. And it's toward this goal that that I urge you to go, being mindful that you are not your own, but that you've been purchased by the shed blood of Christ who bore God's wrath against your sin in your place in order that he may use you to accomplish much. And may he show you firsthand that the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few for his name's sake and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that Your Word encourages us. Thank You for the way that Your Word sometimes even rebukes us. We know that it is not a rebuke out of wrath, but a rebuke out of fatherly love. And so we thank You that You love us. We thank You that You have shown Your love to us by ransoming us and redeeming us from the penalty and the power of sin. We pray, Lord, that as we consider this chapter, that we will be not only spurred on to good works, encouraged to act on the faith that you have given us, but we pray, Lord, that you would grow our faith, that you would grow the confident trust that we have in you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see with our own eyes how true it is that if we stand with You, we stand in the majority. May You be glorified in our lives, in our deeds, for Christ's glory. In His name we pray. Amen. thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus take me deeper